Hello, and welcome back to Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19 series. This is part one of episode three on the theme of adaptation. Pretty much everyone in the world has had to adapt some aspect of their lives in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of us, a lot more than others. Particularly parents of young kids or those who are caring for elderly parents, medical professionals, essential workers, and their loved ones— If you've made big sacrifices and adjustments in your life this year in order to responsibly quarantine and help others stay safe, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Please know that you have saved lives, maybe many lives, and you still are saving lives. All of that adapting, it hasn't been for nothing. Our storytellers in this episode are folks who've needed to make big changes in their daily lives or work in order to cope with the pandemic. I'm pleased to tell you that our first storyteller is the wonderful Fiona Calvert, a scientist and producer of Story Collider UK. Because we weren't able to ship equipment to Fiona, her story is recorded using her smartphone microphone, and we appreciate your understanding with regard to the audio quality. I tap my pass on the security system of the doors to my new office and they slide open and I bound my way up the stairs to the second set of doors. And this is the second week of my first post-PhD job and I finally feel like I've found something that I love. And as I get to the top of that second set of stairs, Something catches my eye and this feeling of excitement almost comes over me. Hand sanitizer. And I head to the doors and notice that there are dispensers at the doors of our new office. And I take a squirt and put it into my hand and the familiar smell of alcohol just floods my nose. And then I take a second squirt. So now I have enough to cover both my hands and the door handle. But I open the door handle with my elbow. And as I get through onto the other side of the door, I notice a hand sanitizer. And so I take a squirt and rub it in my hands just in case. And now my heart is beating really, really fast. I can almost hear it in my ears because without even missing a beat, I have fallen back into habits and compulsions that I worked for years to control. And that evening, my partner Will and I are sat having dinner discussing the virus that is spreading around the world. And I get this feeling of fear bubbling in my stomach, almost like before you're about to sit an exam. Will we have hand sanitizer at work now. Right? He replies, looking at me confused, because I forget that for most people, using hand sanitizer isn't anything alarming. But for me, it's one of the scariest things in the world. We've spoken about my OCD before, and even dealt with small flare-ups, like when having raw meat in the flat was too much for me to handle or when my lab shoes had a specific spot to live in. But those were the manageable parts of my OCD. The Will had gotten to know the post-therapy me 
for me that had spent over 10 years working to control this part of my brain. But this thing that has been bubbling in the background of the news for weeks is the very thing that I have been terrified of all along. That someone somewhere is carrying a virus that I definitely don't want to catch. And anything they touch could be contaminated. And we don't know who has this virus, and they might not even know that they have it. So that contamination could literally be anywhere. And as our government so kindly keeps reminding us, the best way to prevent getting the virus is to wash your hands. My biggest trigger has become government policy, and it is everywhere on posters at work, on TV adverts, on my social media feed. And suddenly this thing that has been bubbling in the background stops bubbling. And at 5pm on the 23rd of March, our government announces that we're going into lockdown, as they call it, only leaving the house once a week to shop for food or for an hour a day for exercise. And secretly, I'm relieved because I now get to build my own clean, virus-free, safe space where Will and I can follow rules that I meticulously decide. I get to watch everywhere our clothes and outside shoes touch and I get to decide when we wash our hands. And Will listens every time I explain why I need something done in a certain way and does it without frustration. And sometimes when he washes his hands just because I've asked, this warm feeling swells inside of me. We create my own safe space, my perfect bubble. We make really, really terrible pasta from scratch and create a game of balcony squash to make the most of our outside space. And I am truly awful at it. <laughs> we have to start building more and more elaborate um, outside uh, barriers because my wayward squash shots are sending balls in very unintentional directions. And in those moments of absolute belly laughter where we're bringing in more obscure items to build our court, I almost forget that there's a virus. But Will doesn't know that even though he washes his hands just because I've asked, sometimes I watch him as he moves around our kitchen and I watch to see where his loose-fitting t-shirt touches. And then I watch to see if his hand touches that same bit of loose-fitting t-shirt that might have touched something from the outside. And he doesn't know that even though sometimes I ask him to wash his hands because I've spotted something, sometimes I don't. And I just sit in that fear, consumed by it, unable to have any other feelings outside of that fear. But I know I have the techniques to get through this. I watch the government briefing every single day, and for a while, nothing changes. But then the numbers of cases start to drop, and suddenly the conversations start to change. Rumours start swirling in the news about how we might ease restrictions and what we might be able to do first. And at 5pm one evening, the government announces what I've been dreading. 
the start of our return to this new normal. We can start to meet people outside, just one person from outside of our household, only outside and socially distanced. And as soon as they announce it, that fear pit in my stomach starts to build again. And I try and pause to give Will time to process this new information before I panic. But that feeling is building in my stomach and the tears are rolling down my cheeks. Because I am terrified of catching this virus. In part because I'm terrified of dying, but I think mainly because I'm scared that if I catch this, it's because I haven't been careful enough. I haven't been clean enough. I haven't washed my hands enough. And that panic is starting to set in as I imagine all the ways we're going to be catching the virus when we go outside. And Will brings me in for a hug and I get to stay in that safe space for a little while longer. And he tells me that it's okay. He's happy to keep things just the way they are for now. But as a couple of weeks pass, the conversations start about Will seeing a friend. And the thought of it absolutely terrifies me. I cry pretty much every time we talk about it because of that pit of fear in my stomach, but also because of this overwhelming sense of guilt that I have. Because even though this situation has almost been perfect for me, I know it hasn't for Will. He needs to go outside and he needs to see people. Just because I have to live in my brain doesn't mean that he does. He would really love to play tennis, but we both agree that that is a step too far. So he'll meet that same friend for a socially distanced walk. And I cry before he leaves and I cry while he's gone. But before he goes, he's so patient and he explains exactly how he'll keep himself safe. He'll keep more than two meters apart. He will go only somewhere quiet. He'll make sure his friend knows that we're sticking to the rules very strictly so the boundaries are set. But I still cry the whole time he's gone and I cry when he gets back. He washes his hands immediately, takes off his clothes and puts them in the wash, washes his hands again and jumps in the shower. But I don't have the capacity for social niceties, and so I interrogate him while he's in the shower. Where did you go? Who else was there? Was it busy? Did you stay two meters apart? Did you anti-back? Did you accidentally brush against anything? Are you sure? And Will brings me in for a hug as he gets out of the shower. But this time I'm rigid because our safe space has been contaminated and our bubble is broken. But again, I sit with that all-consuming feeling of fear because this is how it works. And every time I sit with that fear and survive, I know that it means I can do more. I have the techniques and tools to do this and I sit with that fear and survive. And we start to talk about who I might see. And the obvious choice is my mum. She has been with me through this whole journey. And she is my mum. And I know that I have the techniques to meet my mum, sit with that fear and survive. 
So we agree to meet at a walking spot in between our two houses. And as I pull into the McDonald's car park that we've arranged to meet in, I anti-back my hands before I touch my car door handle and anti-back them again once I'm out and have locked my car. And then I see my mum for the first time in over two months. And this wave of relief rushes over me because I'm actually excited to see her. I have the capacity for emotions outside of fear. And for the next two hours, we walk and I talk to her about everything. And that pit of fear in my stomach starts to subside. And I think that I can do this. I'm going to survive this. And then we get to our cars to say goodbye. And my mum looks at me as if she wants to go in for a hug. And I know that she knows we can't. She gives me this knowing smile. But by that point, I'm already looking at her hand, which is on the strap of her handbag. And I remember being on the walk and her handbag brushing past a bush. And I think, what if someone with the virus coughed on that bush or touched that bush and now that bush is contaminated and suddenly the virus is on her handbag and now it's on her hands. And I notice as her hands move to adjust her top and the virus is on her top. And then her hand moves and brushes past her trousers and I watch as the virus spreads around her body. I get into my car and I anti-back my hands and then I anti-back my own bag just in case. I anti-back my keys. I cover my hands in more anti-back so I can cover the steering wheel this time. And then I notice my hair, my long hair that's been down on this windy day on this walk. And I worry, what if my hair has touched that same bush? And suddenly I notice everywhere my hair touches, my skin, my clothes, my car, and my whole world has become consumed by this contamination. I cannot sit with this fear. I don't know how to get myself out of this moment of fear. It swallowed me. And if I can't sit with this fear when my, with my mum, how am I ever going to go to work or sit in a car that isn't mine or hang out with my friends? After all of these years of work and therapy and I cannot even hug my own mum. Fiona Calvert. Fiona is a science communication officer at Alzheimer's Research UK after completing her PhD at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. She told her first Story Collider story in March 2018 and fell in love with storytelling instantly. And now she is lead producer of Story Collider UK. 2020 has drastically changed her hobbies, as you've just heard. Now she has actually learned to cook and sort of enjoys running in her spare time. Before we move on to our interview segment, I want to remind everyone that you can catch more true personal stories about science at our online live shows. On December 4th, you can join us for our Super Collider Slam. For five months now, we've been holding monthly science story slams online in which anyone can put their name in the virtual hat for a chance to be invited on screen to share their story. At our Super Collider Slam, the winners of the five slams we've held so far will come together to compete for the ultimate prize, a Story Collider hoodie. And take my word for it, they are extremely cozy. You can find out more about that at storycollider.org, where you can also find out more about our online storytelling workshops. Signups are open now for December. 
And finally, if you're listening to this series thinking that you might have a story about how the pandemic has affected you in a big or small way, get in touch. You can send your story pitches to stories at storycollider.org, or you can pitch through the form on our website. We're finding so many great stories through pitches. So if you would like to be a part of our next series of stories about COVID-19, definitely send us your pitch. To find out more about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting our mental health and what we can do to adapt, I spoke with psychologist Dr. Kevin Chapman, who's based in Louisville, Kentucky. Kevin is the founder and director of the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. He specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy, including exposure for panic disorder, agoraphobia, specific phobias, and social anxiety disorders. Welcome, Dr. Chapman. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. So as part of the series, we have a lot of stories that center around mental health during COVID. We have some stories from folks who have mental health struggles outside of COVID that are sort of complicated or or deepened by their experience of COVID. And so as a psychologist who specializes in anxiety disorders, I'm wondering what impact do you think this is happening on all of us in terms of our mental health right now? You know, ultimately, when I think about the impact of COVID, I think about a very important construct that we know intimately with anxiety related disorders, Aaron, and that's what we call uncertainty. And with COVID, COVID has triggered an immense amount of uncertainty and uncertainty in and of itself, though not dangerous, is most certainly uncomfortable. And uncertainty is highly correlated with anxiety and specifically worry behaviors. So what we find now across the board, across mental health, is that people who Um, are feeling uncertain. They're extremely anxious about COVID, how long it will last, whether or not they'll get it. If a loved one gets it, you know, will someone pass away? Like dealing with the death of a loved one, like there's, when will society resume what what we know is normal, right? And I think that if you have a propensity or a tendency toward anxiety, uncertainty is certainly not your friend. And something like COVID and the pandemic is going to trigger that tendency and therefore create more distress than you otherwise would have. One of our stories uh, from Fiona Calvert is essentially about struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder. And at the time of her story, she had worked through it through um, cognitive behavioral therapy. She felt like she had a good way of processing things. And then COVID sort of blew all of that up because now the thoughts that she's been telling herself aren't real suddenly seem very real. And how do you advise patients who are dealing with that kind of struggle right now? Well, I think, first of all, Aaron, I think it's really important to normalize that anxiety. You know, ultimately, again, COVID is something that's actually dangerous, not kind of, sort of. So when we think about something like COVID and pandemics, there's an actually realistic threat there. There is parameters from CDC guidelines for a reason. And despite whether or not you're concerned about it, other people around you, right, are maybe more susceptible than you. And therefore, you have to take precautions. So having to take those precautions inevitably is going to lead to more uncertainty and most certainly more anxiety. And in this specific instance with OCD, if I'm experiencing intrusive thoughts already, especially if it's about something like being contaminated or in some senses, harm obsessions, where I think that I might hurt somebody else and I'm not that concerned about me, but I'm concerned about others, then COVID's going to trigger all of that. So it's really interesting because, you know, many times when I'm working with somebody with OCD, you know, we get them to do things, Aaron, that they ordinarily wouldn't want to do, right? They have to touch 
quote unquote, dirty countertops. They have to touch door handles. They have to not check and they can't go back and see whether or not they hurt somebody if they have like harm OCD in a car, for example. But with COVID, we have to be very flexible and we have to be very prudent about how we tell a client and advise a client to proceed. Why? Because there's actual threat. There are things that could happen. So we have to be very creative in how we navigate. So the first piece, like I said a second ago, is the importance of recognizing that it's normal to be anxious about something like COVID. So don't judge that. So take a non-judgmental stance. And I think secondly, navigating that distress is still super important. It's just a matter of being flexible in how we do it. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. We still need to confront things and deal with the intrusive thoughts and the rituals, but we do so in a manner that's going to be safe. How do you tell the difference between what's an intrusive thought and compulsive behavior and, and what's normal worry and normal precaution? Yeah, it's interesting, Aaron. That's an, that's an excellent question. I oftentimes uh, talk to people about what we call normal worry. And in many ways, the difference between an intrusive thought and normal worry is that worry by definition is what we call a futile, keyword, futile attempt of problem solving future events by generating multiple negative outcomes. So worry, though it seems seductively helpful, always backfires and maintains anxiety. So normal worry is really not that helpful. What most people would call normal worry, we'd never say because we sound way too nerdy. And that's what we call conceptual planning. Who would say that? <laughs> so for, for the sake of contrasting normal worry with intrusive thoughts, it's a matter of subjective distress and impairment. If I find myself preoccupied for an extended period of time, say more than an hour a day, more days than not, then that tends to get into more of the impairing and debilitating form of normal versus chronic worry and obsession. So if it's taking more time than ordinary, if it's taking more time than not during a day, and it occurs more days than not throughout the week, then that's a problem. So what is your advice for how to cope with the anxiety that we're dealing with right now? You know, it's a great one. Um, I think that in many ways, uh, to summarize what I'd say in a nutshell, I'd like to give people practical tips, Aaron. And I think that you know, when COVID first hit, you know, I developed a CBT acronym to kind of describe how to deal with it. And I call it, I called it FIGHT COVID. And the FIGHT is an acronym that just really addresses practical strategies that we can use to navigate all this together because we're in this together. So when I think about FIGHT, the F is focusing on what I can control. That's so important. Being present, though I'm not sure and I'm uncertain about how COVID how long COVID will last, I'm able to control what's happening in this present moment, this bowl of oatmeal or this biscuit that I ate this morning or whatever it might be. That's all that's important in this moment. It's focusing on what I personally can control. And what I can control is this moment in time. So being very mindful and using mindfulness-based techniques, which are very effective, as you know already, Aaron. Um, the I is identify negative thoughts. Negative thoughts fuel the fire to strong emotions, right? And it's not just that they're negative, it's also that they're catastrophic in nature. So if I'm perceiving COVID and other things that trigger my anxiety in a way that's black and white, that will guarantee me to experience a negative emotion. So the key is understanding and identifying what negative thoughts are fueling the fire to my distress. And the, the G, which is in many ways the most important, is generating flexible thoughts. Notice I didn't say positive thoughts, Aaron, I said flexible mm. thoughts. It's not about lying to yourself. Oh, I got this. I feel great. Do you though? Right? <laughs> like it's not really about lying to yourself and like, oh, you got this. But do you? Right? No. It's 
if I'm flexible and I can think about COVID and other distress in multiple different ways, the one I select, the thought I select is what will influence what emotion I experience. So it's not about being positive per se. It's about being flexible by generating different thoughts, most of which need to be evidence-based, right? It could be this. It could be that I can control what's happening right now. It could be that this lasts longer than I'd like, but it could be that. So it's the generation of that that will help me manage my anxiety and other strong emotions. The H is highlighting adaptive behaviors, Aaron, and that's basically what can I do that's going to be healthy, right? Can I go to a yoga class? Can I help somebody down the street who needs groceries? Can I right, call my local so-and-sos and help them through you know, working through a situation, it's highlighting a behavior that's going to be healthy for me and my community. And then finally, T, teaching somebody else the same thing. We're in this together. And it's, you know, we're, if we do this in isolation, we're going to have more anxiety. So we need to buddy up with someone and teach them the same strategies and be held accountable. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because I feel like everyone out there is either struggling with their mental health themselves, or they know somebody close to them in their lives who's struggling with their mental health or both. So I was wondering, how can we help other people in our lives right now? Yeah, and that's exactly the point. I think we're, we're vibing. We're on the same page with that. And that is <laughs> being able to maintain community. And, you know, that's why when COVID first started, Aaron, I made it very clear in the media. I told people, I was like, look, this is not physical. This is not social distancing. This is physical distancing. And mm-hmm. I think psychologically, there's a very important distinction there. Because though being physically close to someone could be problematic, we still need to be social. And I can't tell you, right, how many many Zoom meetings have you and I been on with (laughs) with other people. As a result, we've had to be creative in how we do that. So making sure I schedule time, right, FaceTime, literally pun intended, or other methods to interact with someone, scheduling phone calls, scheduling face-to-face telehealth visits and things like that essential. Even I have, I have clients who do things like play Among Us on like a video platform. Like how fun is that, right? So just being able to be creative and innovative in how we socialize is so incredibly important. And also we know from research, Aaron, that of course, social interaction is going to facilitate the expression of positive emotions, right? So it decreases things like social anxiety and increases positive expression of emotion because you laugh, you express joy, you do those things when you're in the company of other people. Can we get the same type of positive emotions from social interactions that are taking place over Zoom versus in real life? Absolutely. I think that there's going to be an increased intensity of those positive emotions when you're physically present, right? Touching is important. Being close to someone is important, but on a continuum, the next best thing is absolutely being able to do it on a screen. I mean, just think about like people that you want to see and you haven't been able to, if you see them even on a video platform, that's going to create a lot of strong emotions that would not or otherwise be present if I didn't see them at all. So it's when in doubt, see someone on camera and on video, because it definitely is going to lead to positive expression of emotion. Yeah. I find that I always put off scheduling the Zooms, but once I actually do them, I do feel a lot better afterwards. Yep. Absolutely true. You too. (laughs) Me too. Me too. It's kind of like work. It's kind of like working out, right? Like right here. And it's like, oh, I don't feel like doing it. Said like whoever feels like working out. I mean, sometimes I do, I guess, but ultimately we know that the payout is when I'm done with it. And it's the same concept with scheduling these Zooms, like not another Zoom, but you're so glad you did afterward. Totally. So. One of the 
things that Fiona expresses at the end of her story is that she is not sure how she is going to reenter the world after COVID ends um, because she feels so set back in her process with her obsessive compulsive disorder. Do you think that is going to be a struggle for a lot of people when things open back up fully? I do. Um, I do. And I think that, you know, two separate people, but like with Fiona, it's like if someone who is already in the throes of treatment and they're saying that they think it'd be much more difficult for them to reenter. Well, I think there's some truth to that because it's almost like saying you're creating new exposure exercises, like, right. Cause exposure is a component of OCD treatment. So it's like saying I have to relearn some situations and have new rules when I reenter. So naturally that anxiety is also normal because none of us know what those rules are going to be and what that looks like. So if someone's working with a clinician, I think that though it will be uncomfortable and anxiety provoking, I would encourage even with Fiona, I think it's not going to be as bad as they think it will be. But I definitely think that the anxiety that they have about it is certainly something to consider, but it's something they definitely would be able to navigate because our brains are very powerful. And I think that those pathways and those associations that have already been created are going to be so extremely helpful and be triggered when Fiona like starts to re-enter and other people as well. So I do think that it will be more difficult, but I definitely know for a fact, and I'm certain that it will be possible. That's good to hear. Thank you so much, Dr. Chapman. I really appreciate it. Oh, Aaron, absolutely. I, I enjoyed it. And I thank you for having me on. StoryGlider is so grateful to Kevin for sharing his knowledge and to Fiona for sharing her story. StoryGlider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series is produced by me, Aaron Barker, with assistance from StoryGlider's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to StoryCliders board, our operations manager, Lindsay Cooper, and our new interim executive director, Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in the first part of this episode was produced by me, Aaron Barker. The theme music is by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. Stay tuned for two more stories in part two of Adaptation on Monday. Until then, this is StoryCliders signing off. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other. Thanks for listening. And thank you for adapting to make your community a safer place.